This will be presented in a conversation style format between our two panelists, Professor John Gershman and Wagner MPA candidate, Anna Maria Raimundo. We hope to explore the concepts of democracy, the two-party system, the differences between federal and state government, briefly explore some of the main branches of government and highlight ways in which international students can be involved with US politics. So without further ado, I'd love to introduce everyone to both of our panelists. First, we have Professor John Gershman, who is a clinical professor of public service at NYU's Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service. He's a co-founder of the New York Southeast Asia Network and a member of Wagner Action for Social Justice, Equity, and Democracy. His research and teaching focuses on the political economy of democracy and development, the accountability of development agencies, and rights-based approaches to development. He loves talking about the weirdness of American political institutions to students, which is great. This is why we have you here. Um, next, we have our wonderful student facilitator, Anna Maria Raimundo, who is a second year Master of Public Administration candidate at NYU Wagner, taking up a specialization in public policy analysis. Prior to her program at NYU, she worked for the Philippine government under their social welfare agency. She is also interested in education and social policy, as well as topics on women's economic empowerment. So on that note, I'm going to turn off my camera and mute myself and then hand it over to the both of you. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, so happy Friday, Professor. Um, again, to everyone who's watching, I'm Anna Maria Raimundo. I am a student at Wagner and Professor Gershman was actually one of my professors at um, the Wagner School of Public Service. So just to get started, um, I'm going to go ahead and ask Professor. Um, so when we talk about the US government, um, you know, the term democracy is often brought up as well. And um, we want to know and understand, um, can you tell us about the salient features of democracy as a system of government in the United States? Sure, and thanks uh, Jennifer and OGS for organizing this and for uh, Anna Maria for uh, facilitating that conversation. Um, so I think it, it's a couple of important things to remember about the United States um, is that, so the United States has one of the oldest uh, constitutions um, in the world. And <coughs> it's important, I think, to think about the context in which the United States was being set up. Um, so after the American War for Independence, the first effort at constructing a new country was something called the Articles of Confederation. So the idea was um, that there would be a very weak federal government and really uh, the United States was really a collection of states um, and, and would, did not have a very strong federal government. And for any of you that are familiar with the Broadway show Hamilton, um, in that period, which basically was the middle years of the 1780s, um, there were a lot of issues around the Articles of Confederation. Um, and with the lack of a strong federal government, uh, a group of thinkers, including Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, John Jay, wrote a number of things called the Federalist Papers, which basically argued for 
reconfiguring the United States, the Constitution of the United States. And so in the late 1780s, a new constitution was written with really trying to balance kind of three main objectives. One was to have a system of democratic participation um, that was understood at the time to really include quote unquote responsible people. So that was men um, who owned property and who were white. So that was really the, the zone of who was considered to be responsible and um, was appropriate to be involved in the selection of representatives who would make decisions. So the second dimension was that it was going to be a republic, i.e. this wasn't direct democracy, this was electing representatives who were gonna make decisions. Um, so this was still a revolutionary idea at the time in contrast to the monarchies that ruled uh, much of Europe, but admittedly the, the democracy, who was gonna have rights to vote and so forth was a relatively small percentage of the population. Um, the second thing was that people really believed in states um, and that states mattered for a whole host of historical reasons. And so any system of government that was going to be developed had to have power for the states and power for the people. And so the constitution reflects an effort to kind of merge those things. So the House of Representatives was the House of the People, um, where representation was based on population. And the Senate was the House of the State, so to speak, where all states had equal representation. Um, and if you also think about, <coughs> excuse me, there were a few other things that gave the Senate particular power um, so, for example, the Senate confirms uh, nominees by the president to things like the Supreme Court, the federal courts, um, members of the cabinet, they all have to be confirmed by the Senate. So in terms of one of the key check and balance mechanisms, the Senate, which is effectively an expression of representation of the states, is plays a very significant role. Um, and there was also a rule cre created in the Senate known as the filibuster, um, which would mean that you would need super majorities for passing legislation um, if there was opposition. Um, and I'll come back to why that's uh, significant in, the, in a little bit. And the third element was that the, that the Federalists and those who supported this new constitution wanted to have a strong federal government in some areas, um, which would be areas relating to commerce and trade and economic activity, as well as for foreign policy and national defense. Um, but having just fought a war of independence against the king, they didn't want to have the president have so much power that they could effectively act like a king. Um, so there were the creation of these various kinds of institutions um, that led to the separation of powers. So you have the three branches of government, uh, the judicial, the legislative, and the executive branch, um, which was a way to, to have a check on the centralization of too much power so that the president would become a king. And they had specific rules like the filibuster in the Senate that gave protection to minority views, um, not ethnic minorities, just pol uh, political views for minorities. So the, Fed, so the US Constitution is really set up 
effectively to decentralize power. Um, the federal government is supposed to exercise power in a certain set of domains and in all other domains um, that are not explicitly mentioned in the constitution, the states are supposed to be the primary institutions of power. So the United States is a democratic republic. It's also a federal system. And it is one of the most unusual federal systems in that the subnational units, the states themselves have their own constitutions. In very few other federal systems do subnational units have their own constitutions. So states exercise a lot of power in areas where in other countries, um, the national government would effectively exercise that power. And the last dimension was a reflection of a compromise that one of the core institutions underlying the, the political economy of the colonies before they came to the United States was slavery. Um, and so uh, if you know anything about US constitutional history, um, the states that had slaves wanted to be able to count the slaves um, in terms of their representation. They certainly didn't want any laws that would abolish slavery. So that was uh, the three-fifths rule where slaves would count as three-fifths of a person for calculating the population for representation. Um, and this issue about the degree to which slavery was an institution that was foundational to the United States and slavery that was an institution that was basically an original sin and undermined the promises of what the United States Constitution claimed to stand for um, was, a, was an ongoing battle through uh, the late 18th and the middle of the 19th centuries and of course led to the Civil War and the eventual uh, elimination of slavery. Um, so you have this process of building a democratic republic where democratic rights are allocated to a small percentage of citizens and gradually over time through political struggles, those rights have been expanded um, and that you have a federal system which reserves a lot of power to the states and sets up a bunch of mechanisms that makes it very difficult to centralize political power in the executive branch. Yeah, well, thank you for that, um, for that quick um, history overview. Um, just to recap a little bit um, about what you said, particularly on the features of trying to decentralize some aspects. So you mentioned that we have the federal government and then we had the state government, right? And um, essentially what they tried to do in history was try to ensure that there was some form of check and balance and some, I guess, um, liberty within the states to make their own laws and, you know, like improve on their own constitution. So can you help us understand then what would be the differences in the power of the head of, you know, the entire country, the U.S., you know, and then the heads of the states? Who are these figures and what exactly is their authority? Sure. So this has been an area, so there's, there's not one answer to that question over history, this has been one of the, the major legal battles, excuse me, in the federal court system over time has been battling over where does federal government power end and where does state government power uh, begin. The biggest battle around that was over the issue of slavery um, in the 19th century. Um, 
but a, a number of things are specifically the domain of, of state governments. So for example, state governments are responsible for education. So each state comes up with its own um, kind of set of criteria and way of kind of managing educational, uh, the education system. Uh, the, the states are also responsible for most things that affect people in daily life. So it regulates uh, what are the rules under which alcohol can be sold. Um, it regulates a lot of working conditions. States can set minimum wages that are different. Uh, they can't set them lower than what the federal minimum wage is, but states can set minimum wages that are higher than the federal minimum wage. Um, some states have you know, financial aid programs for uh, students who are resident in those states. States governments manage uh, public universities um, in New York. Uh, the state manages the State University of New York system. Uh, the city manages the city university system. Um, and states were also responsible for managing uh, very basic institutions in society, such as marriage. So the state uh, is responsible for setting up rules around marriage. Um, and that included things, for example, for a long time uh, that, sorry about that. Um, Operating with me. There we go. Um, and so uh, the state was responsible for regulating marriage. So, for example, up until the 1960s, you still had some states where interracial marriage was illegal. Um, and it took a Supreme Court decision to overturn that. Similarly, with respect to marriage equality, there were some states that allowed for uh, gay marriage, there were other states that had made it illegal. And until the Supreme Court decided, um, the Oberfeld decision a few years ago, which meant that states were not able to discriminate against couples with respect to, to marriage. And states also manage voting and elections. Um, so it is the states get to decide um, all sorts of issues around voting, such as do you have to register to vote or not? If you have to register, how far in advance of the election do you have to register? Um, what kind of identification do you need to bring to the polls or not? Is there mail-in voting? Is there absentee voting? Is there early voting? All of those things are questions up to the states. There's no national rules um, in the United States about voting, the conditions under which it takes place, um, so on and so forth. And that is left up to the states. The states also, um, after every 10 years after we have a census, uh, the states have different ways of dividing up uh, the legislative districts for their representatives for the House of Representatives. Um, so the state governments uh, control a lot of things that affect people's kind of daily life issues. And in the context of our conversation here, they get to decide a lot of the, and govern a lot of the institutional choices around who gets to vote, uh, under what conditions, and how legislative districts are going to be drawn. And so just looking for the foreseeable future, this of course is a, is a census year. So will people are filling out the census. Um, 
And then based on the census data, states are going to redraw legislative districts. Um, and there's lots of ways to draw legislative districts that advantage some groups over others. And so that's going to be a big political battle over the next couple of years as, as states do that. Yeah, thank you. That's really helpful. So um, I just wanted to jump on um, what you already mentioned about, you know, the le legislative. Um, you mentioned, um, you know, the House of State, the House of People, right? So you have your Congress and you have your Senate. Fundamentally, like, where, where do they lie in terms of, like, their powers? So we often hear about them in the news. We often see different figures but we haven't really been able to place, okay, what is their main role and why are they so crucial? Uh -huh. So great question. Um, so the, the United States has a bicameral legislature. Many other countries also have a bicameral legislature, um, but very often the what's considered the lower house, which is the in the US, the House of Representatives. So the house that's elected based on population. Um, tends to have more power than the upper house. In the UK, it's the House of Lords, or often it's called a Senate in other countries um, as well. Um, in the United States, uh, the House of Representatives single power or, or largest power is that all taxation legislation has to begin in the House of Representatives. So the House of Representatives, um, the Ways and Means Committee uh, in the House of Representatives is the most powerful committee in the House. Um, and so all, anything that has to do with money basically has to start in the House. And uh, members of Congress are elected every two years. The whole House is elected every two years. Um, that is a relatively short period of time. Um, and there have been various times of talking about trying to extend that um, but because every two years means that virtually the, the day after somebody gets elected to the House, they are starting to campaign for the next election. And so there's a lot of criticism that are raised around that. But the major issue is that, um, is that the House is the place where spending uh, bills have to start. And so that's a significant. The other thing is that in the order of succession, um, so we have the president, the vice president. If for some reason both of those people were to die, the next person in the line of succession is the Speaker of the House, who currently is Nancy Pelosi. The Speaker of the House is, the, is elected by the majority party in the House of Representatives. And the Speaker of the House exercises a lot of power in terms of setting the agenda of the House, uh, what are the rules under which certain kinds of bills will be discussed, um, what kind of amendments will be allowed. So the Speaker of the House plays a very fundamental gatekeeping role in terms of identifying what kind of pieces of legislation will be brought up and what will be the rules under which things will be voted on. In the Senate, um, senators are elected every six years. So in every national election, one third of the Senate is up for election. Um, as I said, there's two, uh, two senators for every state, which means that the Senate is the least democratic legislative institution in the world. Um, because you have 600,000 people in Wyoming represented by two people and 40 million people in California represented by two people in the Senate. Uh, basically, 
nine, <coughs> nine the, the least populous nine states, um, which is you know about 2% of the population, have the same representation in the Senate as the 51% of the people who live in the nine most populous states. Um, so again, historically, we understand why the Senate was set up because of there were 13 colonies that became states and they wanted to, and they had different interests and one of those reflected. But now the, the level and disproportionate nature of representation is very significant. Um, the other role, so this, for, for something to become a piece of legislation, it has to pass both the House and the Senate. Um, and so the Senate plays a role in those things. The Senate has the additional power of, as I mentioned earlier, confirming presidential appointments to the federal judiciary, including the Supreme Court. Um, and the, in the United States, unlike many other countries, appointments to the federal bench, either district courts or Supreme Court, are for life. Um, many other countries have some kind of term limits or mandatory retirement age. The United States is basically the only country that has lifetime judicial tenure. Um, and so the Senate's role in confirming those appointments or as under the Obama administration when the Republicans controlled the Senate, uh, refusing to confirm uh, not just a Supreme Court nominee but literally hundreds of uh, federal district judges means that whoever controls the Senate, depending on how what they wanna exercise their power of confirming appointments um, can effectually, effectively disrupt um, uh, or accelerate the appointment of people to, to those kinds of positions. Um, and then until recently, the, filibu the filibuster still exists, although there are some now limits on when the filibuster can be used. The filibuster was most commonly used in the 20th century as a means for uh, senators from the segregationist South to resist civil rights legislation. Um, and the original idea behind the filibuster was that if a senator got up and spoke, they could prevent any votes on legislation as long as they were continuing to speak. Um, after a while, they, they no longer required that, but what they um, would do is basically, if there was any senator who indicated opposition to uh, a piece of legislation and there were not 60 votes in favor of that legislation, effectively the Senate would not bring that legislation up to, for a vote. Um, in the last couple of years, they, um, they changed that with respect to judicial appointments and a couple of other things. Um, but basically the idea that, uh, that minorities, in this case, right, 40%, um, would be able to have a veto power over certain pieces of legislation has, has made the Senate uh, exercise very significant power on um, a lot of decisions. And uh, the Senate historically was thought of as the deliberative body. Uh, because people were elected every six years, the idea was that the Senate was supposed to be engaged in uh, serious deliberation and debate. Um, and that one of the, the big changes that happened um, was under the previous administration, uh, the Obama administration, when Mitch McConnell became uh, the majority leader in the Senate, explicitly used his position as a means of derailing uh, any kind of legislative initiatives 
uh, on the part of the Obama administration and, as I mentioned earlier, appointments. Um, and so the Senate has basically become a, a very big veto player in the movement of, of legislation. And so now you're seeing discussion about whether the filibuster should be eliminated um, and other kinds of things. And that's why this, this election is a very contentious election with respect to the Senate. It's a contentious presidential election as well. Um, but there's uh, a lot of beliefs on the part of the Democrats that you're not going to see a lot of progress on a lot of issues um, unless you get rid of Mitch McConnell and the Republican Party's commitment to using their position in the Senate to frustrate any kind of efforts at governing by a Democratic president. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's a really um, helpful way to contextualize it. But since you mentioned Mitch McConnell a lot, and you also mentioned the Republicans, mm -hmm. I'm going to go ahead and ask, you know, we often hear Democrat, Republicans, these two political parties, and then we hear different terms, you know, conservatives, liberals, fundamentally, <laughs> what do they really stand for? And, you know, in the first place, how did they come to be as um, the the prominent um, political parties in the U.S. system? Sure. So the oldest political party in the U.S. system that's still around is the Democratic Party. It was originally known as the Democratic Republican Party. It was founded by Thomas Jefferson in the late 18th century um, and really reflected the, the sentiments of the anti-federalists at that time, people who were interested in not having the, the federal government play uh, a, a big role. Uh, the other party that existed at that time was the Federalist Party, um, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, James Madison, and others. Um, and uh, that was the, the early debate was really between the Federalists and the Democrats. And it was really a debate about what was gonna be the scope of power exercised by state governments versus uh, the federal government. Um, the Federalist Party kind of died out um, early in the 19th century. Um, and the Democratic Party continued and there were a number of other parties. Um, but by the, uh, the Democratic Party really started to take on its modern uh, frame with the election of Andrew Jackson um, and the expansion of the suffrage in the United States from white men with property to white men kind of period. That was the, the, the initial expansion. Um, and throughout the, the early to mid part of the 19th century, um, people who were opposed to slavery, um, and so you have to remember at this time, the United States is gradually getting bigger through conquest and through um, things like the Louisiana Purchase, it was adding territory. And so the question was, was slavery gonna be allowed in these new territories that were potentially eventually gonna become states? And those folks who were opposed to slavery um, were in a number of different kind of smaller parties uh, and around 1850s created something called the Republican Party. Um, and their first president was Abraham Lincoln. And one of the foundational elements of that party was, was opposition to slavery. That was one of the key uh, elements to it. There were other dimensions, but that was one of the, one of the key ones. Um, 
So then, of course, you had the Civil War, uh, and the Republican Party was in charge of the, the federal government during the Civil War, and during the period of what's known as Reconstruction, which is basically from after the Civil War until 18, uh, the middle of the 1870s, that 10 years, um, there was the passage of a number of constitutional amendments uh, that expanded uh, suffrage, uh, made outlawed slavery, and the, the federal government basically militarily occupied the Confederacy, what was the South. And so in that time, uh, people who were supportive of segregation and uh, white supremacy moved to the Democratic Party. So the Demo both US political parties are much less programmatically defined than political parties elsewhere. Um, in part because of the size of the United States and because state governments are so influential throughout the U.S. history, the, the political parties have always been kind of coalitions of different interests. They've never had really a uniform programmatic integrity. Um, and also because the nature of election rules in the United States, single member districts, plurality winning, there's the inherent logic of electoral competition is to move to two parties, even though in ideologically, you know, Europeans would look at the US Democratic Party and look at somebody like AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's a member of the party, and Joe Manchin, who's a very conservative senator from West Virginia. And in Europe, those two people would not be in the same political party. Um, the Republican Party used to also have a relatively wide scope of, of views there where you had very conservative Republicans um, and moderate Republicans. Uh, and in fact, moderate Republicans were essential to the passage of civil rights legislation in the 1960s. But under the political polarization that's happened basically since the 1960s, there are many fewer moderate Republicans in the party. Um, and basically they have either moved over to the Democratic Party or have just kind of uh, left the party. Uh, so to return to the history for a second, you had the Democratic Party, which was a weird mix of urban political machines like Tammany Hall in New York and elsewhere and white segregationists. That was the kind of Democratic Party alliance. Um, and you had on the Republican side, um, people from the Midwest and the West, um, and the Republican Party was seen as the party of civil rights. Um, moderate Republicans were also pro-choice in general. Uh, there was not as close a connection between the Republican Party and Christian evangelicals, not until the 1980s. Um, and so that was the, the kind of, you had this weird coalitional alliance so that you had a progressive president like Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, during the New Deal, who has to make exceptions to the New Deal legislation that excludes um, domestic workers who are primarily black, who excludes farm workers from labor rights protection who were primarily black. Um, and so you have this, un the continued building of democratic institutions on top of white supremacy and racial authoritarianism. Um, and while the Civil War and Reconstruction made some progress in that era, with the end of this, the Reconstruction 
and the resurgence of what is called Jim Crow or legal segregation lasts for basically 100 years up until the 1960s. Uh, so then in the 1960s, you have, of course, many of you may be familiar with the civil rights movement and the passage of a number of legislation, but namely the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, um, which along with some other legislation effectively dismantle the legal apparatus of segregation. Not to say that segregation doesn't exist in plenty of other domains, housing, uh, the labor market, uh, residential segregation, et cetera, but the legal apparatus is, 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 is demolished. And under the Voting Rights Act, the federal government gets to supervise uh, or was able to supervise the drawing of legislative districts and boundaries in a number of states, most of which were states of the former Confederacy. But they were states that I, were identified as having systematically discriminated against uh, Blacks uh, in the period leading up to the passage of the, of the Civil Rights Act. Um, as a result of, of the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the coalition that passed them were a mix of largely Northern liberal Democrats and moderate Republicans. And if you remember, I said that the Democratic Party in the South was basically the party of segregation um, because the, that legislation was passed with the support of Lyndon Johnson, who was a Democratic president. Uh, many whites who were supportive of segregation started to move to the Republican Party. And the Republican Party beginning in the 1960s starts to actively, which had previously the Republican Party had not been very prominent in the South. Beginning in the 1960s, there's a conscious strategy to appeal to the white nationalist, white supremacist views, particularly but not exclusively in the South as a core element of the Republican Party discourse. And um, we see that existing throughout the 1960s through the 1970s with Richard Nixon in particular. Um, and then by the, by the 1980s, the Republican Party has largely incorporated uh, folks who had previously been white segregationist Democrats. It has made alliances with Christian evangelicals and the Democratic Party is now a party largely of urban centers college graduates, some trade unions, and a range of other uh, interest groups focusing around civil rights, um, the environment, and so forth. And so that continues throughout the, the 90s in the 2000s, where you have um, the Democratic Party is effectively a coalition of uh, particularly Blacks who, after um, the civil rights movement and beginning earlier in the New Deal become the Democratic Party's most reliable base. Like, so Blacks are the most reliable base in the Democratic Party. Um, Latinos are, the Latino vote is a little bit more contested, um, but still Democrats tend to, at national elections anyway, tend to win more votes from the Latinx community local elections can be can be different. Um, and, and the Republican Party is primarily a white party. Um, it has very few representatives who are uh, people of color. Um, and 
under the Trump administration has clearly kind of doubled down on kind of white nationalist kind of discourse and explicit appeals to kind of white nationalism. Um, and so that's where we end up with the, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party as the, as the two dominant parties. There are a number of other parties that you may have heard of, the Green Party, Working Families Party, the Libertarians, um, and others. They have played relatively small roles, although in a couple of elections, their vote tallies may have tipped the outcomes in some state elections, uh, such as in 2000 and in 2016. Um, but by and large, third parties have rarely been successful in, in, in the United States, in part because of the nature of, of the electoral rules. Um, and so uh, there are some states which are making some reforms to the electoral rules. This includes New York City, um, but Maine and a few other uh, places are now using something called ranked choice voting. Um, as opposed to simply what's known as first past the post, which means whoever gets a plurality of votes wins. And so you can have people winning elections with 40% of the vote, meaning that a majority of the people voted for somebody else. But as long as you get a plurality of the vote, you win. Um, ranked choice voting is an effort to try and be sure that whoever wins the election has won actually a majority of support of people who win. Um, it's a complicated question to describe how it goes. I'm happy to talk about it. Um, but there are other, other efforts at trying to have election rules be more reflective of the, the broad spectrum of, uh, of perspectives. Yeah, thank you for that, Professor. Um, so you mentioned, it seems like over the, over the past you know, few decades, it seems that you know, there isn't really like a single stand as you've mentioned, you know, between both the dominant political parties. But then we see that, you know, one is associated as liberal, one is associated as conservative. And you did mention that, you know, throughout history, they did have spectrums. Now we also see one is being referred to as left, one is being referred to as right. How did, you know, how did that happen over time? Or is that something that people just really identified on their own? Yeah, so the left-right distinction really starts to emerge in the late 19th, early 20th century with the rise of trade unions uh, in particular. And so basically, with respect to economic policy, the left, the, the Democratic Party becomes identified as being on the left. It's the party that's had the closest relationship with trade unions over the years. It's been more closely associated with traditional uh, left-wing or liberal uh, ideas such as providing social safety nets, uh, you know, relatively more spending, um, an openness to using t the tax system as a means of redistributing wealth, uh, a commitment to kind of civil rights and so on and so forth. And the Republican Party is associated by and large um, historically with uh, concerns that are largely thought of as concerns on the right. So socially conservative. Um, earlier, it would be libertarian. So that's why the Republican Party, it, in the 1970s, the Republican Party was supportive of the Equal Rights Amendment um, because the Republican Party had a core commitment to civil rights. 
both those people are basically gone from the Republican Party. So now the Republican Party is seen as a socially conservative party by and large, although there's a small libertarian contingent within it. Um, generally seen as supporting policies that are good for business. So reducing regulations, lowering taxes, reducing government spending, allowing the market to play a more central role, being less concerned about inequality. That's kind of the Republican conservative um, right wing kind of framework. Um, that's not to say that all Republicans are white nationalists or white supremacists, but there's certainly a space for those folks within the Republican Party. Um, and, and they do occupy positions there. Um, so that would be, you know, so the, the US definition of a liberal is different than the European definition of a liberal. So liberals in Europe are uh, what in the US we call libertarians. Um, you know, so basically small government, maximum amount of autonomy, not a lot of interest in, in government intervention. Um, but in the US liberals, which are typically identified with Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the New Deal and Lyndon Johnson and the war on poverty in the 1960s, um, that's kind of broadly thought of as the left. Um, but as I mentioned, you have the, the parties themselves have these spectrums within it where um, you know, we, we have people who are members of the Democratic Socialists who run under the Democratic Party ticket who would be roughly equivalent to European Social Democrats. Uh, and then we have people that, who would be in right-wing conservative parties in Europe who are also members of the Democratic Party. Okay, so in that case, um, I wonder um, when when you talk about like citizens, right, who associate with them, is it required that each citizen um, have a particular affiliation to a party, or what? To what extent, I guess, is that really valuable when somebody claims that they're Democrat or they're Republican, and is this something that can be fluid? Yeah. So yes, it can be fluid, um, and people can evolve. People can, you know, vote Democrats for some positions and Republicans for others. They can change over time. Um, in the United States, again, states, state governments, not the national government, state governments regulate elections. So if you, when you register to vote, um, if your state has voter registration, you can choose to register as a member of a political party. Um, and that can be either just a statement of identity or in some states, being the, the, the member, a registered member of a party allows you to vote in the primary elections for that party. Um, now again, because these are all managed by the states, states actually run primaries differently. In some states, for example, only member in, a, in the Democratic primary, for example, only registered Democrats can vote in the primary for the Democratic candidates. In other states, as long as you are registered for, as a political party member, you can vote in the primary, you can vote in anybody's primary election. Um, and then there are the largest number of people are not registered at all or register as independents. Um, and so you have about a third, somewhere between 25 and a third of people are registered uh, Democrats 
25% to a third are registered Republicans, and then the rest is in the middle, it's important to recognize that you can only be registered Democrat or Republican if you are registered to vote. And just only about 70% of eligible voters are actually registered to vote. Um, so in 2016, the largest group of, of people were the people who didn't vote in the 2016 presidential election. Um, either they were registered and chose not to vote or they weren't registered but are eligible to vote. And that's been a longstanding battle, an argument in the United States over um, the United States has relatively low voter turnout compared to other countries um, who are democracies. And there's lots of discussion about what it is that explains that. Um, but we're seeing in the, this election in particular, a lot of efforts by particularly the Democratic Party to turn out people who are, uh, who are less likely voters, who tend to be lower income, communities of color, uh, and young people. Um, young people in general tend to vote at rates lower than uh, older people. And so there's, there's been a big effort this year to really try to turn out those, those folks. Uh, NYU is involved in that effort around NYU votes. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see, just academically, it'll be interesting to see if all of those efforts do result in significant increases in turnout. And based on the data that we have of early voting that's already been taking place over the last couple of weeks, this, this election could potentially set new records in terms of voter turnout. So it seems like, Professor, um, um, a really important facet of democracy in the US is really being able to vote for your representatives <laughs> and your, um, you know, your public servants in, I guess, in the ideological sense. Um, but um, considering, for example, international students who are not citizens of the US, um, how do you think, you know, these, these figures, um, these branches of government, these levels of government, particularly affect international students? Or is there one particular, you know, branch or level of government that can actually implement policies that affect international students? And if so, um, I guess, how can we as international students be involved in ensuring that these policies will help protect us, but at the same time, you know, help ensure that, you know, we contribute to ensuring the democracy in the US? Right. I think that wasn't a mouthful. Sure. Um, so I just want to stay up front that I am certainly not an expert in immigration policy in any way, shape, or form. But if we, I think there's broadly speaking, two levels. Right, so to the extent that international students are residents in any particular locale, New York City, for example, um, you know, the policy decisions made by, say, the New York City Council is going to affect the well being and livelihood of people in that city with respect, or, or the New York State, depending on the issue, um, you know, with respect to the availability and cleanliness of mass transit the public safety, right? All of those things are areas that are influencing your daily life, uh, how much you pay in sales tax, et cetera. And so it is entirely within people's rights to write to whoever the representatives are for the geographic jurisdiction in which you live to express those views. 
and as long as you express your political views in a legally acceptable manner, which can include, you know, going to marches and so forth, um, that's totally that's totally fine. Um, that doesn't mean uh, that there aren't efforts on the part of some people to try to go after immigrants for you know, people who are legal residents um, for expressing political views. The other main domain of policymaking is the explicitly immigration side, which is a federal government uh, responsibility um, through whether it's ICE, uh, Customs and Border Protection, uh, et cetera, and the various policies that they make, um, some of which are just policies by the executive branch. And so the executive branch does have the authority to change certain kinds of policies around um, restrictions on international students or how many visas of a particular type are gonna be released. In the US, that's not a legislative, primarily a legislative question, that's primarily an executive branch issue, although the, the legislative branch can do some things um, around that. Um, and so we've seen that clearly, you know, the Obama administration used, used executive power to do things like the DACA program and other kinds of things about shaping the implementation of uh, border control policies. And clearly the Trump administration has, has tried to do the same. Uh, in terms of other things that international students can do, uh, again, it depends on the state, but in, uh, in most cases, if you're going to be a poll worker, you have to be a US citizen, but there are a number of places that are recruiting poll watchers to monitor voter intimidation. And there's no necessary reason, as long as people are following the rules, that international students can't be poll watchers. Um, part of that process is monitoring online communications. Um, and there's a number of organizations that are, that are doing work um, around that. Um, international students can, there's a number of organizations that write letters and postcards to encourage people to vote. And as long as international students do not purchase the stamps, but all they do is write the letters and write the postcards, that's a totally legal uh, thing for international students to do. Um, Non-citizens are not supposed to make contributions to political campaigns. So international students, even if you're supportive of a particular candidate should not be making contributions to anyone's uh, uh, election campaign financing operation. Um, but so there are those kinds of things and attending talks. The Wagner School, for example, next Friday, October 23rd is hosting uh, an event called From Anxiety to Action, which is looking at a range of ways that it's entirely possible that the Trump administration may try to derail or literally steal the outcome of the election. Um, and that there are a number of organizations that are uh, nonpartisan organizations that are preparing and organizing in advance if such events happen as the president's own statements have indicated might happen um, to be involved in nonviolent protests to defend democratic institutions against any kind of effort to try to steal the election. Um, so, uh, and we'll have a speaker from the New York City Civil Liberties Union 
um, who will talk about kind of knowing your rights if you decide to be involved in a protest. And we'll talk specifically about particular risks that international students face and, you know, how to think about those risks uh, with respect to, to kind of protest. Thank you. So that's the um, next Friday, right? Yes, Friday the 23rd from 1 to 2. Sure, thank you. Um, uh, thank you so much for that, Professor Gershman. Um, I'll just, I guess, open the floor for questions. So I saw a couple of questions in the chat already. Mm -hmm. If it's okay, I can answer those. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, so the first one that came in was, can you detail a bit more on what factors drive designing the legislative districts? Yeah, so of course, this being the United States, states draw the legislative districts, but there is no uniformity on how states do that. Um, so in some states, and what is widely recognized as the best practice, the state turns over the drawing of legislative districts to an impartial panel. Um, and these days you can, with a certain set of principles for designing legislative districts, which is typically, so you have to have the same number of people, which in the US is roughly 750,000 people are in a legislative district. Um, the exceptions are, every state, no matter how small its population, gets one member in the House of Representatives. Um, and so that, again, tends to lead to overrepresentation of, of smaller, less populous states. But in states that have more than 750,000 people, um, after the census, and first of all, then they have to, because we are fixed at 435 members of, of Congress, uh, that's another issue whether we should increase the number of members of the House of Representatives. Um, but then you have to reallocate seats to the states based on their population. And so states can gain or lose seats depending on what's happening with their population. Um, and then it's typically some combination of either the legislature and or the governors that are involved in approving the new map of legislative districts. And as I said, in some cases, they, there's an impartial panel and they come up with the map and typically what they try to do is to maximize um, kind of density in the sense of people should be in the same district as their neighbors. Um, there may be some kind of historical reasons why it's not exactly that, but and you may want to try to overlap with existing political jurisdictions like towns and counties and so on and so forth. But typically you can basically design a computer program to produce an impartial kind of district. Um, historically, there's also, and there's under the Voting Rights Act, you are supposed to take into account uh, representation for previously discriminated against groups. And so that can alter the legislative districting. Um, in places that don't have an impartial panel, it ends up being a very politicized process. And therefore, whoever typically is the majority party in the state legislature more or less gets to draw the legislative districts. And perhaps unsurprisingly, they tend to draw them in ways that benefit that party. Now, this is a bipartisan activity. In Maryland, the Democratic Party has, has drawn districts to benefit the Democratic Party. In other states, uh, the Republican Party has tried to do that because the Republican Party in most recent years has controlled more states. The Republican Party has been involved in this activity. 
what's known as gerrymandering, but basically drawing districts in very funky shapes that basically serve to put all of the supporters of the other party in as few districts as possible and give your folks the chance to win as many. Um, so there are a number of groups have been campaigning for states to pick up the impartial commission model. Um, that's probably going to be a, a significant area of focus in the next uh, few years. Great. Uh, man, it's so complicated. I like try to wrap my head around it and I, my mind is still like spinning. Um, we have another question that asks about is there any likelihood that the disproportionate nature of the Senate, so two senators per state, could be restructured? So, no, um, it's not very likely because it would require a constitutional amendment. Um, and uh, so, which would require approval of states who benefit from their current overrepresentation. So, that's highly unlikely in anything approaching the short term. Um, I know, and we didn't talk at all about the Electoral College, which is a whole other issue. And I know Professor Naftali is gonna be talking about that in the, in the next webinar, which I encourage people to go to. Um, but so it's unlikely that um, there's gonna be the ability to, to do that. Um, other proposals that have been raised have been to increase the number of states, particularly increase the number of states where Democrats are likely to have a majority. And so some of you have may seen that there's uh, a wing of the Democratic Party is particularly interested in promoting statehood for Washington, D.C., because Washington, D.C. is not a state. Um, Washington, D.C. does have representation in the Electoral College, but it does not have two senators uh, in the Senate. Um, there's also been discussions at various times about Puerto Rico, um, and uh, that's a more complicated issue because it's really a question of self-determination on the part of Puerto Ricans. Puerto Ricans are US citizens, um, but they do not have representation um, uh, either in the electoral, if they live on the island of Puerto Rico, if they live on the mainland, then wherever they are living, they have uh, representation through those bodies. Um, it's not entirely clear that Puerto Rico would be a majority democratic uh, district. The, the, the one unofficial Puerto Rican representative that does exist caucuses with the Republican Party. Um, but there have been other kind of proposals, you know, fragment, you know, divide some of the large states like California into smaller states and so forth. Um, but I think in the, in the short to medium term, we are, we're kind of stuck with the Senate as we, as we have it. Um, and it's, there are the potential for other reforms, which would be beneficial, uh, increasing the member, the numbers of people in the House of Representatives, uh, for example, uh, reducing, you know, eliminating the filibuster. Um, certainly adding Washington DC would not be a bad idea. Um, and exploring to the degree that other US territories such as Guam, American Samoa, etc., would be interested in statehood. Uh, but we one shouldn't assume that those places want statehood as opposed to some other form of uh, relationship with the United States. Great. And final question. Um, 
what is the likelihood of the U.S. moving to a multi-party system? So as long as the as long as the electoral system is its current structure, which is a plurality-based system with single-member districts, the likelihood is basically zero. Um, because there's no real way for, without some mechanism of what in Europe you have as uh, uh, proportional representation or multi-member districts, um, those would be possibilities. Uh, and those things could start to happen at the state level. There's nothing stopping states from experimenting with some form of proportional representation in the ways that some municipalities and states are um, doing with ranked choice voting. And so if I was gonna see any potential progress on that front, it would be at the state level where states could select their legislative representatives based on some form of proportional representation. And that would create incentives for, um, for a range of other parties to exist. And that would be, excuse me, that would be a great um, way to try to experiment with those things and expose people um, to, to those kinds of ideas. But there's, it is virtually impossible for a third party to exist as long as the election rules are the way they are. Well, we want to thank you both so much um, for participating in this presentation. It was really informative and I, I think our audience members um, feel the same. Uh, so what we're going to do, um, if I could get Sarah to share the screen and then um, we have <coughs> a couple of events coming up. Um, one at OGS, two at OGS actually. What, the next one is the Know Your Rights um, webinar, Interacting with Law Enforcement. That is going to be on October 20th at 10.30 a.m. Um, following, the following day, it will be Understanding U.S. Elections on October 21st at 12 p.m. Very similar format, um, also in collaboration with Wagner. And then we have some save the dates for Wagner. So um, this will be post-election, so after November 3rd. Uh, so save these dates. The potential dates are um, Tuesday, November 10th, or Thursday, November 12th. And it really is to address what comes next. Um, Jennifer, so, can I just chime in? For yeah. Um, one other save the date um, will be, Wagner will be hosting a virtual election watch party that mm -hmm. will provide the opportunity for people to watch the election returns collectively. There'll be breakout groups where student organizations and other folks will be holding discussions about what's happening with the election and so mm -hmm. forth. And that'll start at seven o'clock on Tuesday, November 3rd, keep your eyes out. And it's gonna be open to the entire NYU community. Perfect, that's great, thank you. So we wanna thank everyone for participating. Um, we do have a feedback form. You can scan the QR code um, or access the bit link. Um, we really do appreciate your feedback and just to, you know, kind of um, figure out what future programming looks like. And so please, please fill that out. Um, we will have the recording um, to hopefully post live on our webpage. But on that note, we really appreciate your help, Professor Gershman and Anna Maria. Um, this was a wonderful session and we're really happy to have all of your knowledge and expertise to share. Thanks very much. Thank you.
All right. Have a good rest of your day or evening, wherever you are in the world. <laughs>